All right, this episode actually needs some listening instructions. Uh, Dennis Cruz and I were taping the interview at the Alcove in Los Feliz, which is just east of Hollywood, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, the geography of Los Angeles. But as we taped the show at the six-minute mark, a bicyclist was doored by a car. Uh, getting doored by a car is when someone opens the door too fast without looking to see if there's bicyclists on the road. And the bicyclist had no time to stop, so he just plowed right into the car. Why do I tell you this? Because at the six minute mark, there's some confusion. And I left it in the tape as we continued chatting because we referenced it a couple times after it happens. Essentially, it scared the hell out of us. But, um, but I'm sure the bicyclist was slap a silly for being scared because he's the one that actually got hit. And now, enjoy the show and be ready for it to sound confusing for a 30 second chunk at the six minute mark. Hi, I'm Dennis Cruz, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And I'm the Drinks with Tony Show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Dennis Cruz. He's the author of No One Poems, Moth Wing Tea, and his latest book is The Beast Is We. How are, how are we doing, Dennis? How are me and you doing? I think we're doing pretty good. I mean, let's see how it goes. <laughs> I love your glasses, and um, they—they just—you got the perfect like. What what kind, what do they call those these types of glasses that we wear? I don't know, man. Uh, it took me about a year to find them, and basically, the only way I could start really searching for them was Martin Scorsese glasses, because oh, it was wow. like the closest thing. I wanted these yeah. like you know thick black frames. Yeah that looked like if somebody punched me in the face, they'd survive, you know? Yeah. And I was like, I gotta find that. And so that was the beginning of the search, you know? Yeah. And then just kind of digging around. You know how it is when you wear glasses. It's, your, it's like your whole face. It is. And you can't change it. It's not like shoes, you know what I mean? Every day you gotta throw them on your face. Yeah. And you know what it's like when you think you like a pair, you spend fucking $400 on them. And then you gotta walk around with them and then you don't like them. It's like, I'm not gonna buy another goddamn pair. I'm just gonna be ugly and pissed off for four years yeah and then it's almost part of an identity thing because we have to have them on our face so we can't go straight from like the martin scorsese glasses which right. i love that you call them that to uh to like john lennon circa glasses because people won't even know what who we are they'll be like wait um you look like a guy i knew once oh my god man i remember i went through this one phase I was really pissed off that I had never in my life been able to wear shades, you know. And this was like, I don't know, late 80s. And I wanted to have some fucking shades. So I bought some. And, you know, they were shades all day, all the time. And they were my only glasses. Terrible fucking mistake. But every... (laughs) Did did that make you look like a diva when you're indoors? (laughs) Oh, my God. All I ever got was Los Lobos. (laughs) You know how irritating that was? Like total strangers. You're at the damn Starbucks and they're like, yo, Los Lobos. I'm like, oh, fuck me, man. It's either that or like Roy Orbison, you know, and you're just like, it kind of really makes you realize, yeah, it's your whole goddamn identity. You pick wrong and people will think you're a douche. Yeah. I mean, we could be douches, but if we express ourselves through our glasses, then it, it, then it won't matter what our personality is. I mean, if I'm going to be a douche, I want to be a douche on purpose, not accidentally. You know what I mean? Tar- it's, it's targeted douchery for the people who deserve it. Exactly. It, you know, 
I'm guilty of it too. You've done it. You're like, you're somewhere and you see some guy and you think, look at this fucking guy with his stupid glasses. You know what I mean? Who does he think he is? Who's he trying to be? And you're just irritated, you know? So I don't know. For me, I just wanted something solid, you know? And I already got a fat face. So I didn't want, you know, you can't, there's certain glasses you just can't wear. You know what I mean? Because it just don't look right. Oh, you call it fat. I call it square. We got the square. We got the square face going. Yeah, definitely. So we got to enhance it with kind of square glasses. Yeah, man. Fucking accoutrement, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pretend like I know, but uh, but for this, but pretend like I don't know. <laughs> you know, man, just being pretty. Oh yeah, exactly. It's, you know, you got to accessorize. I love that. Um, I love it when I think somebody's a douche and then I meet them and I talk to them and they turn out to be amazing people and then I'm the douche for thinking they're a douche. Has that ever happened to you? Almost all the time. Yeah. Whenever I meet somebody new and then, you know, you, you kind of get reflective and realize maybe you're just a fucking hater. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just walk around judging people or disliking people or just assuming that nobody's a nice person. Yeah. You know, I don't know where the hell that comes from. I definitely know I suffer from it. I think I do too. I think I think just in general, I'm kind of disgusted with like life and a lot of things, and that may be me projecting my disgust onto other people when those other people aren't part of the problem. I have my own issues. Right. I think like lately, I've been really reflecting on the idea that it maybe it comes from like a deep-rooted self-loathing. So you prejudge people and kind of assume that they're assholes but down deep what you're assuming is well that person would never like somebody like me oh that's a good one therefore they're probably an asshole in that way i don't have to feel bad i just go ahead and project my self-loathing on them you know oh that's a terrible person obviously but what you're really saying is i don't think they're gonna like me i don't think they would want to talk to someone like me you know and then what do we have to do in those situations? We have to introduce ourselves and find out that they're nice. That's the, ne- that's the next level, which I'm not at yet. But that's, that's my future, I hope. I don't know. It's hard, man. I did this thing where I went to a party where I didn't know anybody. I knew one guy that invited us, but he was just a Facebook friend of my wife's. Funny dude. But he was having these epic parties, like punk bands in Highland Park. Oh, really? Calls them a dog lipstick. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, that sounds fun. Okay, I want to hear about this, but we, I want to hear about the punk parties, too, just so I can go one day. Yeah, yeah. So, Dog Lipstick, right? He has bands. It's at his house. And, oh, my God, me and my wife were so fucking stressed out. It was like, how do we do this anymore? When we were younger, it was like, oh, you have a few beers, you know, you meet people. But it had been a while, you know. We had a... Somebody get hit by a fucking car? I, I just heard a, I heard a crunch and a scream. Oh, oh my god! Shit. So uh, somebody just got doored on a bicycle and uh, in, in front of the cafe, which is kind of, which is kind of, um, what do you call it? <laughs> now we're all concerned, but uh, but so yeah. Anyway, you, you work with a bike messenger? Uh? Yeah, I work at a, an attorney service. So like, you know, all the dudes that run stuff to the courts are bike messengers and fuck the horror stories they tell me it's not just like not being seen or people being careless 
but there's actually people out to fucking get them. You know, just like, you're not going to slow me down, you're not going to mess up my chance at a right turn, so I'm just going to speed up, cut you off, hopefully you hit the brakes in time, because, you know, I'm just irritated that you're on my goddamn street. And that happens so much. Dudes are just getting hit and knocked around all the time. Like, you know, they prepare for it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I... I'm, I'm scared. Of, well, I was scared in San Francisco. I kind of stopped riding bicycles in San Francisco in my 30s, and not a lot of it wasn't because of the cars. It was because the other bicyclists were more dangerous, and they weren't doing. Um, they they were more being trying to look for cars that were there. There was a little more anger, so they were looking for any infraction. And I'm just like, dude, keep your line. We're all we're all riding here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes this thing where it's like a goddamn battle, because you know, I guess so many years of cyclists just getting pissed off at not having the space not having the room you know people doing mean shit in their cars and now it's just like they're all pissed off oh good bicyclist is standing up and he's got his hand up in the air well shit i'm glad i'm glad he just hit the door i thought a car hit him or something when when everyone screeched to a stop and i just heard a crunch i think the crunch was actually the door of the car and him hitting the door I was because it sounded like it could have been bones. <laughs> yeah, man, fuck. Just goes to show you never know. I'm sitting here chatting, it's like, oh, did somebody just meet his last day? Yeah. Yes. Bicyclist is up. Everything seems okay. <laughs> My heart is still racing though. <laughs> yeah, man. You see the whole coffee shop kind of stand up. Yeah, yeah. The scream was what freaked me out, and he was like yowling. Yeah. I think the scream might have been from the woman in the car. Yeah. 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 All right. And the ambulance is here and the police are here. And uh, the fellow's walking with his bike. So that's good news. That's scary, but good news. Uh, I guess we should talk about death now or something, right? Oh, let's go straight to death. That sounds great. All right. You start, Dennis. <laughs> well, it turns out I'm probably going to die. And trying to deal with that, you know. Do you think? How often do you think about death? Um, fuck, man, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think about it every day, so that's why I ask you. I mean, I think about it every day. I'm just trying to count how many times a day. I mean, no exaggeration. It follows me everywhere. Really? I was always kind of obsessed with it at first, like a fear thing, and then when my mom died, it became like in my face. I don't know if it was like a PTSD because it was like a it wasn't natural, you know, getting old. It's violent suicide oh, yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. And then I got this kind of paranoia about death. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to die. Everybody I know is going to die. And I don't know how soon that's going to be. Right. And like, what the fuck is it? You know what I mean? It's like you don't really, you don't really start putting together all your ideas about it until you're confronted with it in a real way. You know, it's easy to go, oh, well. My spirituality, you know, I don't know. I'm still working it out, figuring it out. And then all of a sudden you're confronted and you're like, oh, shit. Well, have I decided what the fuck I think about this? You know, which like, thank God I had writing because that was the only way I could figure it out. You know, and that was in one of your poems about your mom in the latest in the latest book, right? I mean, yeah, it's pretty much in all three of them. It's just it just comes up. You know what I mean? Because I wasn't, because when I was reading that, you know, I'm, I mean, 
I know like a lot of like novelists or poets, they, they assume everything's autobiographical, but at the same time, it's like, no, these can be constructs. So I didn't want to assume that it was autobiographical, but it, it, that, it was pretty intense. Yeah, man, I'm a, I, don't, I don't really do like the fiction stuff in the poems. I'd like to, but that's not what comes out, you know? And I can't, I don't know how other writers do it, but I can't sit there and say, oh, I think I'm going to write a poem about this you know I'll just sit down and pop out a first word and then it'll tell me what it's going to be about you know what I mean sometimes it's a memory sometimes it's a feeling or an insight or whatever but when you're going through shit it's shocking how much stuff comes out and you know I thought it was kind of really lucky for me that I had that to kind of confront all this horror and fear that I was in you know it's like hey so what am I going to do about this now you know, I've got like rage, I've got anger, I've got fear, existential fear, I got spiritual horror, you know, like this whole shit, you know, and coming from my family who's, you know, a lot of them are kind of Christian, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so there's all this talk about, is there a scripture about suicide? Isn't that supposed to mean she goes straight to hell? You know, I had this one funny uh, thing with my uh, grandma after my son was born. Every time she would see him, she'd burst into tears because my mom never got to meet him, you know. And one day she just kind of broke down and told me the biggest problem she was having was thinking about her daughter in hell. And I'm like, well, where did you get that idea? She says, the Bible, you know, says, says that. And I was like, just off the cuff, I'm like, well, you know, the Bible also says that only God can give life. And therefore, only God can take it away. So ultimately, there really is no such thing as suicide because if it's not your time, God won't let it happen. So if she died, it doesn't matter how, it was her time. And because that's how they explain babies dying, right? So it's like it's their time. So that kind of gets over the um, gets over the just absolute mind fuck of a baby dying where how do we explain that right and you know this i could just see this fucking relief washing over her face like i had just taken this huge burden and the ridiculous part is i made the whole shit up i don't know if it says that in the bible you know i'm all it must say that in the bible somewhere but I wasn't sure. I, I, I think, I don't know if it says it in the Bible, but I know that there, that, like when babies die, they go, oh, it, it was their time. I feel, that's from my memory, which is very, very skewed. I, <laughs> I mean, in my head, I'm thinking those babies were douchebags anyway, because I wasn't sure if they liked me. <laughs> well, <coughs> but that's kind of what I'm saying, you know, like, you kind of like, all of a sudden, there's these kind of questions that can't linger around in the background anymore. Because it's like, well, is there a hell? And if there is, is she there? You know, is it terrible? Like, I I didn't really know one way or another how I felt about all that stuff, you know. And I went crazy with, like, research and reading and, like, and I, I think right before I wrote this last book, I went on this whole, like, religious history tangent because I wanted to know where the Bible came from. I was like, well, you know so many people just buy into this stuff uh, you know i need the source i need the origin story where did this come from who wrote it who edited it how many times was it like did a rough draft slip through you know what i mean and 
And I was shocked by all the shit I found out. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It was so much more uh, like a political thing than anything else. Interesting. Now, I've been, is that because, um, I, well, I mean, I grew up in a very different way with the Bible, but I used to believe in the Bible as utter scripture. Now I don't. <clears throat> but um, what was the political um, angles on it that you found? Well, I mean, at that time, it's like what, what was happening in Rome and what was happening with Judaism is, you know, they were really trying to consolidate because there was a lot of these kind of mystic religions that were starting to spread, like Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was just too loose, you know. It didn't have any rules. It didn't require a church. They were doing some weird sexy stuff and maybe some weird druggy stuff. And, you know, it was getting harder and harder for people to, like, pay their taxes or give a shit about that kind of thing. And so, you know, at the time, they were like, well, what do we do? They're like, well, we need to form a definitive church and a definitive religion and see how we can sculpt it to incorporate as much as what's popular but somehow rein in the power and make people kind of dependent upon the church to access you know that that thing that everybody is looking for and it was like they pretty much sculpted Christ into being from one book to the next you know because at the time, um, none of the books were referring to Jesus Christ as a person. You know, it was more, it was more, um, it was a state of mind. It was like reaching the state of Christ. And this is what the Gnostics were teaching. And they were like, well, that, you know, that's not going to go as viral as if we make it an actual real martyr story. And interestingly, um, it was martyrdom that made Christianity blow up because you know, some of these Christians weren't willing to, like, kind of worship the emperor, which at that time he was also being worshipped as a god. Which, was that, like, uh, is that, like, the Nero days? Or yeah, well, after, but I don't know. I mean, I'm, throw, I'm throwing out stuff there. Like I, like, I know everything about it. I'm just, like, starting to grapple with it, too, and go, oh, my God, the ro- what, the, like, the Stoics were teaching is kind of similar to what Jesus was teaching, and they were being exiled. And, and you know, this whole thing of, like well okay so people were getting arrested for you know not being willing to to worship these things that the romans were kind of demanding and there was like the famous story of the first person it was like well if you don't if you don't like pray to the emperor then you know we're going to execute you it's your choice and the person chose to die and that fucking story hit the streets and everybody it like it went viral people were like this must be the real shit because people are willing to die rather than say no. So obviously it's the real deal. Whatever's in their spirit, that's what I want, you know? And I'm just like over here from the other side going, dude, like, do you know how many of these books were just like edited or burned? Like there were so many different gospels. It was like a genre at the time. So like, you know, if you're reading the book of John, there was 12 and they burned the other 11. You know, they decided what was going to be, like, the canonical text. And then everybody else was just shut the hell out. It's, yeah, because it kind of blows my mind, because I've, I've just realized this kind of recently, like, uh, like Apostle Paul and all these guys, they were writing these books 30 years, supposedly, after the Jesus was around. And that narrative, I mean... A narrative gets twisted 10 days after something happens, 30 years after. 
And from what you know, from what I'm, from what I learned, most of the books that made it into what's now the Bible were. They were 150 years after these apostles lived, okay? And they were, it was so long ago that we, they, they're not even based on the original books. They're based on the stories told about the original books. And like, for instance, the book of Re- Revelations, which was kind of like the horror genre at the time, and a lot of, there's a lot of dudes writing Revelations. Revelation scared the shit out of me as a kid. And it's funny because, you know, you, you read about these other people that were writing these revelation books and the one that they picked was the scariest the most violent and ironically the guy that wrote it kind of wrote it metaphorically against um you know what had happened to some jewish temple i don't remember had just recently been burnt so it was kind of more of a military book it was like a you know like a um an admonishment of government and people trying to to change you know judaism or whatever and so you know the romans were like this is good this is scary as fuck we should put it in there you know what i mean because fear works and now that people aren't like death and fear of death isn't convincing them anymore because this martyrdom thing was happening where people were willing to burn rather than renounce their new religion they're like well we can start making them scared in other ways you know bigger shit than just dying is at stake now so you better get with the fucking program pay your goddamn taxes and remember if you don't come through the church you will not reach the house of god we wrote it in there you can't come to the church without giving us your goddamn money and your servitude you know yeah it's like it's like psychological spiritual prison complex you know it's like we want you to do stuff but we want you to think that you're doing it of your own accord and it blows my mind because i think i think we as humans need actual some we need some actual like either mentorship or someone on some level that we can go okay that make can you tell us what to do i mean you know if i had someone every morning going tony Here's what you need to do to be a good person and have an abundant life today. I'd be like, great, let's go. I, you got that taken care of for me. But I'm, I'm stuck here in my own head going, oh, wait, I have to produce this abundance and happiness on my own. And then that's kind of a burden where that burden's kind of taken away, I think, when, when we can look up to other people. But at the same time, we really need to have our mentors. I don't know what the hell I just said. I think it sounded good. <laughs> I mean, that, I think you hit the nail right on the goddamn head. That's the thing. I mean, it's a human trait. You know, I was reading... Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I was reading, um, what was it? Uh, Genealogy of Morals, I think. Nietzsche. And how he kind of breaks down the history of what goodness is. And how human beings don't necessarily have an inherent sense of morality. It has to be taught. And that's done culturally and spiritually. But as a people, and like you said, as a person, that's, that's where you get your sense of safety from. Somebody comes in and they tell you, oh, here, here's what you got to do to be a good person. Here's what you got to do to respect and honor God. And here's what you got to do so that other people think you're a good person. And, and that's what you want. But if you have to figure it out for yourself, like I realized I had to do when my mom killed herself, it's fucking brutal. Because I'm not buying into, like, the usual stuff. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm going to be born again. 
right? But if, but if I'm reading the Bible and it's not speaking to me in the way the Holy Spirit is supposedly supposed to do, then what else can I do? Maybe read about where the Bible came from. Where do all the Bibles come from? Yeah. That, that really started you almost on a spiritual journey or quest, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. It was more like a, um, it was like a spiritual confrontation, you know what I mean? And which which can had only always been kind of the thing with poetry for me was, you know, when I found it, when I stumbled across it, I, I, I was just blown away by what I thought would be an avenue or or mechanism with which to investigate like those deep, complicated uh, issues that you have or, or, you know, ideas that you have. Like maybe through this medium, I can articulate to myself my, my personhood, you know, and then also fix shit. Because how do I even know what the hell is really wrong if it's just a bunch of fucking hornet's nest in my brain? I can't sift through all that shit, you know? All I know is I'm feeling angry today. But you sit down and write... And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, shit, I think my dad kicked my ass too much. I mean, I know that on a vague abstract level. But when you write down something specific and hone in on it, all of a sudden it's a revelation to you. Like how much maybe that's affecting your anger, you know. And without that, it's like, you know, the same reason why people go to therapy. And I don't go to therapy because I'm an asshole, you know. I always think, what's this fucking idiot going to know? I'm probably smarter than him. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, yeah, it it was definitely a spiritual thing. I remember my wife asking me, what the fuck are you doing? It's like seven months now. You're like eight or nine books in at the fucking library reading all this shit. Like, what are you up to? And I'm like, I don't know, but I felt like I was preparing for this big argument. And maybe it was with myself. Or maybe it was just with, I don't know, orthodoxy, because I was getting pissed, you know. I, I started to become kind of resentful slash envious of people who were so easily, you know, comforted by things that they didn't even bother investigating. To me, it was insulting, you know. It's like you have a fucking intellect, right? So tell me how you came to the conclusion that these words are sacred when you don't even know where they came from. How about if I wrote a book and told you that it was delivered to me in visions by God? Would you believe me? Well, you're, you're pretty convincing, so I'd probably join. <laughs> and then, you know, what, you know, what if I am? What if I am writing the new sacred words delivered to me by God? I'm not going to get the play the King James Bible gets, you know what I mean? You need a better publicist. That's what I'm saying, you know what I mean? But, you know, I mean, really, honestly, it really started to bug me, especially with my family, you know, because after this death, everybody was just like, oh, you know, my, you know, my one aunt was like, I took her to church a few weeks before she died, so she's, you know, she, she had Christ, so you don't have to worry, she's in heaven. And I'm all, fuck out of here. I don't have to worry. What the fuck do you know? Who are you? To like just gloss over the horror of this because, because you can do that. I should do that. And I wish I could. Because you seem at peace. I'm fucking definitely not in peace. But I'm also angry. Like how dare you insult 
the fucking the, the brutality and the gravity of just being a person in the world by just glossing it over with this little sheen of like well I got Jesus so it's all good and I'm all it's not all good you know like fucking admit it you know what I mean and and yeah so yeah like getting back to my point I really felt like I was preparing for an argument and then I realized that the argument was with myself it was like so I'm mad at myself about this and I want to defend myself properly you know and you know how it is in writing sometimes you go off on a tangent and you don't know who's fucking talking anymore you don't know who the narrator is because suddenly the guy talking is maybe vindictive or mean or judgmental maybe it's you maybe it's your dad maybe it's that boss that fired you after 20 years whoever it is you know you're solving for these things in your work you know and so that's what i felt i was researching like i'm pissed off about this thing and i need answers you know what i mean and you know you get on the fucking internet for half a minute and you're just overwhelmed with like oh you know the the christian nation and look what's happening to america and we're losing our rights and you know everybody's pushing a, a, a very theistic agenda and that's not what it's about but they're winning and i'm like okay it's easy to argue about those things because they're important things but for me the argument was bigger you know because you know there's hypocrisy you know that people are doing things behind the guise of being a good christian really it's about something else you know and I'm just like, I just want to dismantle it in my own mind and understand. And it was shocking the shit I found out and how many parallels and how many religions came into being in the same way, in similar contexts, in similar like political strife, you know, and how, you know, there was probably a lot of sociopaths out there going, hey, this could really work for us. Let's, let's try to smash out some of these smaller little, you know, pagan things and unify it all and then we'll have real power you know it bugs me that people don't investigate you're making the biggest decision of your life because you're living your life based on a rule book and you don't even know who wrote it and it's so much of that i think is just so people can feel okay around a lot of group of people and go oh we got we're in the same gang kind of thing uh if but we don't want to investigate it too much because we're all happy in our in our um in 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 our little belief system that may not you know we don't know the info anyway and then um but then yeah it's something something shatters us and we're like wait a second wait when uh so as you were going over the, uh, the your research, did you ha- were there conclusions that you came up with on like spirituality in general, and also on um, like with grieving with your uh, mom and stuff? I mean, you know, I had been kind of formulating my own belief system and my own philosophy regarding this thing for a while. You know, I used to read a lot of you know a lot of holy books when I was younger. You know, I wanted to read about Buddhism and Hinduism, and, you know. So I read a lot, and the first thing I saw or noticed were the parallels. You know, like the principles, the stories, the the metaphors, the symbols, the characters. There were so many similarities, and 
you know, I never considered myself an atheist because, you know, I've had experiences where I'm like, okay, whatever that was, it's not just psychology, okay? And, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion a long time ago that there's, there's a powerful, beautiful other thing that's bigger than us, that connects us, and that all religious material is an attempt towards articulating. But I don't believe that one is right over the other. I believe, you know, culture and history and geography all play into what the people of that time used for, as a sense of articulation. You know, like, because there is something I think and I feel and I trust, you know. And whether you're meditating or praying or fucking DMT and ayahuasca, what, you know, all these things, like, I don't think they do or should negate each other you know and that's the thing that that i find troubling it's not people's adherence to a religion it's people's exclusion to others that bothers me so much because i'm like at at its core system that's not the point but people being the social animals that that we are it's very easy to say like you said well this is my gang and that's your gang and mine's better Mine will fuck you up. You know what I mean? And in the end, you'll see when you're all burning. And it's like, come on, man. You know, like, give it a fucking rest. You know? Like, I'm okay. You're okay, man. You know, Jesus, cool. Ayahuasca, cool. Castaneda, whatever. You know, do your thing. But at the same time, like, I feel like it's important while you're still alive to confront your own mortality, to confront your own psychology, and, you know, I, f I feel like it's only, it's the only way to really have a peaceful life, you know, and I didn't realize that I didn't have some of these big questions answered yet, because, I, you know, I was busy doing shit, you know what I mean? But then when somebody close to you dies, you're like, okay, well, this is real, and I don't want to be sideswiped again because more people are going to die that I love. And I need to like get to a place where I feel I understand as best I can and have as much peace with it as best I can. Because like the thing that really gets me, it's, it's like the most fucking natural thing in the world. Yeah, and it's the last thing I ever want to have happen to me or my friends. <laughs> That's the thing. And you know, culturally and historically... There's just like such a record of so many different cultures and belief systems that were so much more at peace with it, whose ideas about death, whose thoughts about death, uh, mourning, all these things, they were just like not, it was just not s such a big problem for a lot of people. And like, I want that. You know, my wife is really good at that. She, she kind of taught me when probably from when we first started dating it was like 26 years ago wow that's a long relationship congratulations that's rad thanks man but you know I remember learning from her that um, you know just the basic shit like you know bravery isn't the absence of fear it's being able to walk with the fear and continue anyway and she taught me a lot about pain she was like you know um this goal of yours to be pain-free is not only is it unrealistic but it's unnatural 
it's like you're putting too much stress on your own suffering you really should learn how to value it because it's important it's a teacher and it's the other side of love and I was like, what the fuck do you mean you know but then I would see the way in which she would endure real pain you know when things would happen you know real painful things were happening and there was just kind of beauty and grace you know in the way that she dealt with it and it kind of made me understand it's kind of like death you come to this realization that it's absolutely natural it's the most natural thing and where then does all this fucking fear come from and is it like if if you can't vanquish the damn fear then Maybe there's a way to incorporate it into a state of naturalness. Because there's a difference between being afraid and being afraid and running away from the fear. You know, if you can just sit with it, then it becomes natural. But if you're fucking running away from it, then, you know, you're always thinking it's going to catch me. And then it'll be really fucked up. Why don't you just sit down and let it catch you already? And fucking sit with it. See and see what happens. You know? I know that all too well because I've had panic attacks for years and the thing about getting through getting through the the what do you call it? More the long the long term goal of losing panic attacks is learning how to sit with panic attacks, which sucks. But when you sit with your panic attack then it did, then the power of a panic attack goes down and you're like wait i sat through one of you before i could sit through this one again even though it still sucks there's a um the power of it is diminished a bit because yeah like the old, the thing i always think about fucking panic attacks is that there's the panic attack but then there's the panic of having a panic attack which is a whole other thing like something's happening to you viscerally and physically but then psychologically you're blowing it way the fuck out into so much other shit which is probably why they call them panic attacks because the attack is one thing but the panic is something else you know and like you said you you change your perspective on it and you move through it differently and then it's not so fucking panicky then it's just I'm having an episode but I'm not going to freak out thinking and overthinking about how horrible the goddamn episode is. You know, I remember having problems with fucking nightmares. You know, I had a... Um, when my mom died, nobody, uh, um, nobody really went to the hospital, you know? It was like, it was in the middle of the day, and it was pretty gruesome. And by the time, you know everybody had found out or whatever they had already like moved her body and you know so there was no it wasn't a pretty sight and i my wife said maybe we should go and say goodbye you know? anyway long story short i got to see the corpse fucking hideous and i think because of that fact there was an extra level of horror and terror involved with the loss and i started having just the most vicious fucking nightmares unbelievable I was like, like, where does this shit even come from? Like, I couldn't even imagine the shit. 
And it became that thing about being afraid, but also being afraid of being afraid. Terrified that I'm going to have another fucking nightmare because I was having them a lot. And then one day, my wife asked me, what was it? And I was like, I, I can't tell you. She's like, it's too difficult. I'm all, no. I just don't want you to have that image in your head because it's ugly. She's like, that's stupid. So that night, I went and wrote about it. And it, I was reading it later like, holy fuck. That was fucked up, you know? But, you know, as I was writing it, like, I could literally feel the fear of it diminishing. It was like, now it was interesting to me. Now it became, like, curious. Like, is that a spiritual thing that's happening to me? You know? Or is it a psychological thing? Or is there a difference? You know, is psychology, like, the translator of spiritual material, you know? Is there symbolism here? Is something trying to teach me something? Is it God? Is there a God? Is it the fucking devil? Is it the same thing? Are they the same thing? Is it all the same thing? Because I was just so shocked by, you know, some of the imagery and, like, the storyline. It was so goddamn detailed, some of these dreams. And when I wrote it down... I didn't stop having the dreams, but their effect was changing. Like I didn't wake up fucking hyperventilating, screaming and crying. I just woke up and, you know, like the way you feel when you see a David Lynch movie or something, where you're just like, whoa, I'm not even sure if I enjoyed that, but fuck. I'm glad I did it, you know? That kind of thing. Wait, when... It, feel, it seems like, you know, writing and reading has just been the, the uh, saving grace to you. I, I push my, uh, my, my, I push the, my, uh, my, how it's been to me. I mean, reading was a saving grace, and then writing just was a whole new level of um, me trying to deal with the various griefs and shocks I've had through life, where I, I feel like it literally saved my life on so many levels. When, when did you find poetry and... Um, as, as a reader, and, and how did how did it affect you when you first like found it? And it was such a visceral, and there was that visceral moment of like, oh man, this this is touching me in a serious way. Well, I mean, I found books first. You know, as a teenager, I remember going through a bad breakup, like the love of my life in high school. Did, okay, I, I just isn't it great the suffering because the suffering brings us to books. <laughs> I mean, I was literally in a panic because it was the summer and I didn't have anything to distract myself away from how much hurt I was and I remember going into a supermarket and picking up a Stephen King book and I started reading it and I didn't put it down for an hour and when I came out I felt like I had some kind of a suffering shower like for that hour I had washed away all my pain for a bit and I didn't even think about that bitch (laughs) for an hour I was so engrossed in this book and yeah that was a revelation but with poetry I mean it sounds kind of cheesy now but it was my it was like my 21st birthday and I was with a girl I didn't like at a party with people I didn't like that were playing terrible metal music that I didn't like and a friend showed up with some acid. Hey, let's do some acid for your birthday. 
So we did. Had you ever done acid before this? Yes. Okay. So it's not like this was a smash cut, let's drop acid out of nowhere. You, you, You had experience with it. Yeah, definitely had done it before. But it was really surreal. I didn't know that he was going to show up or anything. He didn't know anybody at this party but me. Neither did I. And he had made this Doris tape. And it was one of those, you know, old-fashioned mixtapes. tapes, man. He had little splices from the American Prayer where there was all this poetry. I'd never heard any of that shit before. I just, yeah. And so he had done this poetry album, which was, you know, he read all his poetry and then posthumously the Doors made music around it. So there was a lot of clips of that. And I had never heard poetry before or read it before. And, you know, I was pretty high, but I had this really intense experience where I was hearing words that I wasn't sure that I understood what they meant, but I felt like a different part of me was understanding what they meant. And I felt like it opened... You know, I don't quite know how to describe it, but it opened a way for me to understand on a more abstract level that didn't have the restraints of like logic or even language, that I was able to have an impression put upon me that in itself helped me understand something. And I had been really obsessed with, you know, really complicated thoughts that I would have that I hadn't found a way to articulate. I just knew that there was something going on and that it wasn't happening to other people. And then when poetry hit, I was like, this is it. This is how I can interact with that part of me. And I had always suspected that it was like this big, you know, almost mystical thing. You know, the way, the way say, uh, you know, a painting hits you. It doesn't tell you what it's about, but you fucking understand it. And it's complex and... It almost, it would almost make it worse if it was explained literally, you know what I mean? Because your understanding of it somehow, it's this fucking satisfaction. It's like finally I'm understanding what it is to be me in the fucking world, you know? And I thought through poetry you can transcend like the limitations of language because language always tries to just, you know, bring everything down into a little box this is what is and this is it and I didn't agree with that I was like there's more and it's bigger than words but I wasn't good at fucking painting you know what I mean and then poetry came and I was like this is it this is the way this is the way to communicate that way and I remember it was some cheesy shit like he had said a line that went something like uh the music was new, black, polished chrome and came over the summer like liquid night. And sure, I was high, but it was so beautiful to me. And it was a different, more kind of beautiful that I didn't know I could experience like so succinctly, you know? I was like, fuck, what did he just do? the fuck do you mean liquid night you know what I mean Like it got in me I felt like on a goddamn cellular level you know like this is beautiful man and you know in the beginning I was like yeah I want to write poetry and I want to like just access all this beautiful in 
tangibility of experience and and to just kind of hint at things to provoke my own imagination you know what i mean i want to i want to give questions to myself and then answer them in another fucking poem you know it was all so great but then when the tragedy hit it wasn't beautiful and mystical anymore not i didn't have access to that anymore because i was in terrible pain but how fucking lucky that that very thing was what helped pull me out you'd you'd um you'd already set up a mechanism to deal with something that's just i've had suicides in my family too not my mom but my mom her mom killed herself but um it's so hard. I mean, it's still hard for me to grasp the suicide uh, death. And, but, we, but we have our preparations. And you had the preparation of poetry. And I, I feel like I'm decaf agnostic. That, that's, I'm like, um, you know, but I do feel like there's things that are out there that are going, we're preparing you for something else. And I don't know if that was the case with uh, you finding poetry first. And, or, or if... Or if I'm just trying to make it more spiritual, mystical, or what I'm doing. I mean, no, that's exactly my take on it. And the older I get, the more, like you said, you know, agnostic, yeah, that's that's good. Because there's a question mark there, you know. And so my thing is, like, you start to notice and get this sense of, like, this synchronicity, you know. Time starts to do funny shit. Like, you realize something in the past that felt so present was actually you preparing for something that was coming in the future. And I had all these ideas about what I thought poetry was and what it was for and what I used it for and what it was. And then I was confronted with, with a horrible change and all that shit went out the window. But then suddenly I realized, well, what if I tried poetry to, to do this with? And fuck, it was huge. It was so, it was a fucking godsend, you know? Because like you know, with suicide, it's so fucking complicated. You get so exhausted trying to just sift through, what the fuck am I feeling? And the combinations kill you. You're like, I'm sad, I'm angry. There's a part of me that is tripping on how absurd this is. I almost want to start laughing, but I'm, I'm kind of afraid if I start, I'm not going to stop and I'll be one of those guys under the fucking bridge, you know. But with poetry, like I was able to, you know, to, to grab that, access it, articulate it, sift through it, categorize it, and also deal honestly. You know, one of the big things about suicide specifically is you can't talk to people about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And if they do want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about the real, real ugly shit. You know, everybody wants to talk about how it's a tragedy and how you should seek help if you're having thoughts and how you should seek help if it happened to somebody you love. But nobody wants to talk about the real ugly shit. It's like when somebody you love kills themselves, it does some baddie shit to your brain. It's hard to bounce back and just live in the world like other people because you're like, you understand, that's a, that's like a, that's a door that's been opened now. It, I never thought it was a choice. You know, now it's out there. There's like, 
Well, he could hit get hit by a car or fucking hang himself. And try telling one of your friends, oh, yeah, I'm worried about my brother. Yeah, what's the matter? Well, I think, you know, what if he hangs himself? People look at you like you're fucking crazy. Why would you say that? Oh, well, I'm saying it because it happens. People hang themselves. It's not cool to talk about, but it happens. Why the fuck is it happening more? Why are kids doing it? Like, what the fuck? You know, and with writing, that's where I get to go there. That's if I'm if I'm in a, an outrage, I can write it out. You know, I'm, go ahead. Well, I mean, like you say, when people, you know, they, they have good intentions on like, oh, here's here's the suicide hotline. And, you know, they throw this up on like social media during the holidays and stuff. Oh, here's this. And I and it always pisses me off to no end. I'm like, no. Don't even fucking talk to me about that shit because I know you haven't been through it. You haven't been through it on a level and it hurts to even see that. And yeah, I know it's there and I know there's like outreach and stuff. But at the same time, I've been on the very dark side of it where, you know, I even checked myself into a hospital some years ago because I was like, okay, I don't see anything but dying as a, as, as a solution. I need to get help. So... But it wasn't because someone posted, oh, call a suicide hotline. It's like, no, I've been through the grieving process of other suicides before. And I know that, well, I can't do this to my friends and family, even though I feel so low that I can do this to myself. What do I do? So, I remember having a grapple with this rage, right? And I couldn't figure it out until I started writing. And I remember like it finally came out at least part of my rage was like fucking mom how could you add this to the list of choices of what somebody can do with their life I had never considered that a choice now you open the fucking door and by opening that door you've put me into a place where I'm looking at that fucking door now you know and then you start thinking well if she did it I can do it. Do I want to do it? Am I destined to do it? I mean, I'm her fucking kid. You know? Maybe she started a domino effect. You know? Because don't you get that feeling sometimes? Like, you know, whether it's school shootings or fucking teen suicides, where, you know, you, you start momentum. And so, like, to create this dark ass momentum that suicide does. It doesn't just open that door. It opens all the fucking doors. Because it's the darkest, most fucked up one. And now, they're all on the fucking table. Everything you never thought you would consider, you can now because suicide. It's like, well, that's the most fucked up violent thing ever. So, what does it matter if I become a speed freak for seven years? What does it matter if I drive drunk all the time? What does it matter if, you know... And then it just opens that, that area that people don't like to go to. And, you know, luckily for me, like you said, beautiful trauma and beautiful pain all my life since I was a kid. I was already there contextually, which I think better prepared me maybe than some of my other family members. But I've always been very honest and confrontational about my traumas. You know? Like, fuck that, I'm fucked up. But I'm not going to stay quiet about it. And fuck that guy. I know he's my uncle. Fuck that guy. 
why are you being nice to him? You know what the fuck he did. You know? So, in writing, I didn't, I didn't realize how valuable it was going to be to me because this was bigger than anything I had dealt with before. And when I finally figured out I could write about it or that I should write about it, it, it was just like, you know, that giant fucking burden little by little starting to lift. Because it gave me objectivity. You're not objective when you're in the middle of the fucking tornado. You're just flopping around waiting for a fucking fridge or a car to smash you. But in writing, you, it's like being in the eye of the tornado. You, know, you can see all the shit flying around, but you're still. And then you can say, oh shit, that refrigerator is coming for me. I didn't even know there was a refrigerator, you know. And that's what it was like for me. I was like... I didn't know I was angry at her for opening up the option. I didn't know I was angry at her for giving up. I didn't know I was angry because it made me start considering giving up. I remember telling my wife, you know, baby, there's a good chance our marriage is not going to survive this because I don't really see myself coming out from under this. What was her reaction? She was pissed. She was like, what the fuck are you saying? I don't give a fuck if you ever come out of it. I don't care if you're a depressed, fucked up, angry person the rest of your life. I'm still your fucking wife. So, who the fuck are you to dictate what I need to be protected from? Give me this patriarchal bullshit. If I don't fucking like you anymore, I'll be the one to let you know. And then I was just like... That's my mom. I, I don't think I had ever sounded so defeatist before. And I was like, Mom, you fucking bitch. You gave me giving up. And I don't want it. I don't want it. You know? And then, like, being mad at her. Like, you fucking weak-ass bitch. Deal! Life is hard. Deal with it. And then, you know, it took me ten years to get to the other side of, like, fuck, man, some people can't deal. You know, and also, death, man, you know, who the fuck am I to say or dictate, you know, what's the right or wrong way to die or what the fuck to do with your life? I don't think, you know, I don't think it's a, um, it's a good thing or something you should suggest to people. But if you're not in somebody else's mind, it's easy for you to say, Oh, fucking Chris Cornell, you had beautiful kids, you had so much money, you had such a talent, like, what a waste. How could you do that to your kids? And I'm like, have you even listened to his fucking lyrics? Like, he's been this way since the first Soundgarden record, man. That's some deep, dark shit from the jump. You know, and like, I'm not saying it's not terrible, I'm saying don't judge a motherfucker. You don't know his horror. You know, you don't know where he was at. You don't know you don't know other people. We only see the pretty from the outside, especially from celebrities. We don't see the day to day where they have to wake up with themselves and they have to wake up with their family and the sixteen hours of just constant, you know, uh, stress or you know, at, at that level he's dealing on other things too that I mean I can't fathom because I mean I, we're not famous we don't know <laughs> not yet shit after this I think we're both gonna blow up you know what I mean we're going to the deep dark shit right here 
<laughs> yeah, don't you like it? We just, it's just like we we go we go we got we smash cut right into drinks with Tony suicide. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it's like you were saying about like a suicide prevention month or whatever. Like I remember, I think it was Anthony Bourdain. And like an idiot, you know, you read an article and then, oh, let's see what the comments are. I want to be sad with the other people that we lost one of our people and all the like judgment. And I just, I can't tolerate that anymore. You know, it's like, how fucking dare you? You know, it's like, it's like you said, you don't fucking know. You, you don't know anybody that's killed themselves. It's never happened to you. Stay the fuck out of it. Mind your business. That was his business. You know? If anything, just be sad. Because he's not around anymore. Anything other than that, fuck you. He's not even yours. You know what I mean? He's just him. Fucking A. But yeah, you know. That's that, that's pretty much where that last book came from. You know. Also, I got fired. I've been working at a talent agency for 20 years, oh, really? which was violently emasculating and racist. And Wait, what, we're in L.A., so what kind of talent agency? It was the Gersh Agency. Oh, you're at Gersh. Oh, I, I, I was represented by Gersh for about three months. <laughs> oh, my God. And I think I signed something where I'm not supposed to talk bad about them, but fuck it. <laughs> I don't think they listen to this anyway. You know, I worked there for 20 years, and it took me 15 of those years to actually start making money. And when I started making money, everything got real bad, real quick. More duties, more... You know, there was a regime change, new bosses, and they didn't like me, and they're pretty racist. And You know, rich, multi-million dollar agents, you know, calling you names and shit. I was putting myself through this because I thought this is what I should do. I got stepkids. I got, a, you know, my little son now, all this stuff. And when they fucking fired me, Jesus, it fucked me up. Like my whole sense of self was like, what the fuck were you doing? Yeah, why did you allow yourself to be beaten down? Were you like, where was your dignity? And then the other me going, shut the fuck up, man. You did what you had to do. Relax. And then the other side going, you made a mistake, bro. I don't think you did the right thing. I think they took more than they gave, and now you don't have shit. So, you know, it was kind of a long crawl back to me rather than that dude that worked at Gersh for 20 years, you know? I kind of, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to work on how to articulate this in an essay or a later book. I had the same thing with the film confessions of a teenage jesus jerk going from pre-production to production and then post and then the the uh the really crazy things that happened on so many levels where i feel like oh man how did i let those people in my life and none of the people that anyone would know that are on the that are uh you know that are on cast or eric the director but just other people involved i was just like I, i felt like i went through like two years of depression and then but it was me being depressed about letting those people into my life and letting them affect me like that. And that, and I was putting too much of my identity on the, it's so it was the total mind fuck. And yeah, it's it, where people just think they're like, Oh, you have a movie. You must have a lot of money. It's like, no, nah, I didn't make a penny. And, um, there was two years in bed weeping <laughs> and it's just trying to figure out what the fuck just happened. You know? Oh yeah. My dreams came true, but it's not fun. So. 
I mean, I had I had a lot of tough time grappling with this last book because, like, like I said, when I first got into poetry, I was so in love. I was such a romantic. I was idealistic. You know, it was my it was my invitation to beauty and grace and magic and all this stuff. You know. And when I did it, and I did it right, it was so satisfying. Like, for the first time, I felt like like I might be a beautiful person somewhere in there, you know. And then when that went away, and all the shit that was coming out was dark, it was like, what am I even doing this for? But then, you know, you get older, and you realize that art and, like, entertainment are not the same thing. They can both be in the same thing, but they're not the same thing. And that sometimes really necessary, really important art is not always going to be fun to make or to experience. You know, some of my favorite books or movies confronted me, you know, assaulted me, jolted me, challenged me, frightened me, you know. And it's weird when you're the one wielding the pen on that shit this is not what I thought would happen so people say oh you must be so proud you wrote a book and I'm like "Uh, yeah I mean I'm I'm proud that I did it (laughs) you know and then you read you know you're at a reading and you read your incest poem and nobody claps because you can't clap for incest right and I'm like no bitch clap because I wrote this shit let's all give it up for incest (laughs) It's like you're not clapping for the subject, goddammit. You're clapping. For, uh, well, fuck it. Don't clap. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, it's like you said. You, you, you fucking make your dream. You make your movie. And, and you have this whole idea about what that was going to be like. And it fucking wasn't it. You know. Well, that's, part, that's part of the learning curve. And the, I like um, how you, uh, you just... Um, you just mentioned something of you know what we get older and that was that was an important statement i think because there's always hope so even i, I had another uh, friend of mine on the podcast jerry minor who's tried to kill himself twice and then he got out of it and what we what we discussed is e- even in the darkest of times there's always hope and, and what he became and what he's been working on is brilliant he's a very funny sketch stand up he's on tv shows all the time and it took two suicide attempts and him getting out of it and him getting older. So now he's in his 50s and having a, a life that's different than he ever thought. So there's just something fun about going ahead and just getting older and just knowing that, you know what? Yeah, death's going to come. Let's just try to keep it out in the, uh, in the years where we're getting senior discounts at uh, matinees and, um, you know, we're, we're talking colonoscopies. I mean, fuck yeah, man. You know, sure it sucks, like, if your knee goes out or whatever, but, like, you know, the thing I love of having been here a little while is, like, the biggest takeaway for me is realizing that you don't have as much control as you thought was possible, but you really have the the beauty of perspective, and that you can control, and that is everything, you know? It's like we were talking about incest, right? I thought I wrote the world's first funny incest poem. And I was really proud of myself. Not because of the poem, but because of how it spotlights perspective. 
you know, because this shit happens. Every horrible thing you can think of happens, but your perspective can save you. You know, you can you can change the way you think about a thing, and now it's not the same thing. You know, and now my mom killing herself isn't the act of a fucking you know coward, selfish person. Now it's just a tragedy. And that's my perspective. And it took me fucking 15 years to change it. But it sure is great to just be able to cry for her. And just be sad. Because at first it was not that, you know? And that's, you, you apply that to everything, you know? Like, hey man, your mind is yours. You know? And through your mind, maybe your spirit... Maybe they're the same thing. Hey, that's a fucking perspective too. And it's mine. And I and you know, I developed it for my goddamn self. Fucking beautiful. You know? Dennis Cruz, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me, man. This was fun. <laughs> fucking A. Dennis Cruz on Drinks with Tony. Check out his books, The Beast is We, Moth Wing Tea, and No One Poems. And only one bicyclist was harmed during the episode. Fortunately, he walked away from the accident. Hey, you like books? You like writers? You're a writer yourself? Well, thanks for listening to the show. This is pretty much what we do here. We just shoot the shit with cool writers. Drinks with Tony airs every Wednesday, so go to drinkswithtony.com for more information, and I'll see you all next week. Have a great weekend.